the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Ghost. A few years ago, as I was working with a couple in preparation for their marriage, um, one of them asked for a part of the wedding service that was not in the draft that we were looking at. Now, to him, there was an important phrase that was missing, and he really wanted it there. And so I asked him, well, what, what is it? What's missing? And he said, well, I really love that part where the minister says, by the power vested in me by the state of blank, I now pronounce you married. He said that was especially important to them because they had a lot of family coming to the wedding who weren't quite sure about this marriage. And so he wanted that to thunder forth, that this was a legal and proper thing by the power vested by the state. Well, I included the phrase, of course, but it got me thinking. I'd never used the phrase before. Well, it's not in the Book of Common Prayer. I hadn't really thought about not including it in most weddings. We all know that phrase, probably. We've seen enough movies and television shows and been to weddings where we've heard it, by the power vested in me, by the state of wherever. But if one looks into it, it's difficult to trace its origin. Now today, of course, of all days, we have some extra priests and seminarians who clearly have nothing better to do on Sunday, and so they've come to All Souls, and they can probably tell you exactly where it is. So after coffee hour, they can tell you. But I don't know. I've looked and looked and can't find where it originated. Um, It seems to be more something that has to do with the law and with the state. It's not in the 79 prayer book, the 1662, the 1549. It's not in the rubrics as far as I can tell. I can't find it anywhere. And it seems to vary according to locality in terms of what is actually said. In fact, in 2010, when Irwin and I were married downtown by the officer of the D.C. Superior Court, the officiant actually said, Under and by the virtue of the authority conferred upon me as clerk of the Superior Court of the District of Columbia by the Congress of the United States... I now pronounce you married. I loved that irony in 2010. I love it today. So many of our Congress people, I'd love to go up to and shake their hand and say, thank you so much for approving of my marriage. That question, by whose power? By what power? Is a good question. It's a question that's been very much in the media, in social media as well, especially since the Supreme Court's ruling on marriage equality. And if you think about it, it's a question about authority. The question really is, who gives you the right? Who allows? By what authority? Well, of course, July 4th is the anniversary of the Declaration of Independence, and the Constitution came a little later. Um, But the Constitution has been especially in the news lately, especially the Supreme Court has been and continues to be intensely interested in constitutional authority. Now, I'm completely out of my field when I begin to try to navigate the land of legal theory. But I know that some of the court's justices want to preserve what they believe to be 
the original meaning of the Constitution. And whether that judge is an originalist, a constructionalist, or a textualist, I don't know. But what I recognize in that line of thinking is to me in similar ways something that I hear with people who interpret scripture along those same lines. If one believes that the authors of the Constitution wrote the words they wrote and so they mean what they mean, then that carries a particular view. Some believe Moses wrote down the first five books of the Old Testament and that the New Testament also gives us a verbatim historical account of the life of Jesus. Those who believe such would say they wrote what they wrote and it means what it means. There's no question. No room for interpretation. Well, I can't really argue as much about a particular philosophy of law, but when it comes to Holy Scripture, I would want to begin the conversation by reminding all of those involved that we don't worship a book, however good the book may be. As John Westerhoff has beautifully put it, Christianity is a religion of a person, Jesus Christ, not a book. And Jesus is the word of God absolutely. Jesus himself is questioned about authority. By what authority do you say and do the things you do? We overhear it in today's gospel. He was teaching in the synagogue and people were astounded. Where did this man get all this, they asked. What is this wisdom of his? Isn't he the carpenter's son? Jesus doesn't argue with them, which I find fascinating. He simply moves on. It's as though Jesus is demonstrating what he later tells the disciples to do. He's, he's demonstrating that the source of his authority comes from God. That authority he later hands on to the other disciples. And they channel God's authority over unclean spirits and all kinds of things. Jesus, of course, is not alone in being asked to prove his authority. Our first reading reminds us of the prophet Ezekiel, who had a connection to God that led him to do all sorts of strange things in an effort to illustrate God's point to God's people. Many just thought Ezekiel was crazy. But Ezekiel was certainly crazy in love with God and, and willing to go wherever God sent him and to do whatever God asked him to do. And God tells Ezekiel, essentially, some will refuse to listen. Some will think you're crazy as a loon. But whether they listen or not, they'll know one thing for sure. They'll know they've had a prophet among them. God promises Ezekiel that, that whatever, God, whatever Ezekiel does and says, God will put a certain something in the mouth of Ezekiel, in his heart, in his mind, so that people, if they're open at all, will apprehend that here in this man is something special, something of God, something transcendent. The Apostle Paul was asked, by what authority, by what authority do you do what you do and say the things you do? Recall that earlier in his life, Paul had persecuted Christians. And now look at him, preaching about Jesus, trying to get people to follow Jesus more closely. It's easy to understand why people would have doubted Paul's authority. 
But Paul talks about his experience of God in answer to the question or any question of authority. Paul talks about his own experience of God's miracles and other people who've had visions of God. But also, Paul speaks eloquently of God's ongoing miracle of working strength through Paul's own weakness, of God's wonder in creating power out of pain. We should take note of Paul's method of preaching and living, of always pointing to Jesus Christ. It's an important piece in how the church understands authority and tries to convey this sense of authority. Our Episcopal Church, as part of the Anglican tradition, holds a unique view on authority. And to vastly oversimplify it and to say what a lot of you already know and can teach better than I probably, just before the English Church came into being as the Church of England, at the Reformation there were two basic views of authority. The Roman Catholic view understood that authority comes through Scripture and through tradition. But there was an emphasis, an obvious emphasis on tradition. Tradition meaning mostly the teachings of the church and the interpretations by the bishops. Protestant Christians, on the other hand, especially Calvin and Zwingli, and to some extent even Luther, though he's not technically Protestant, he's Lutheran, believed that scripture alone was the means of authority in the church. And that the meaning of scriptures should be interpreted through the Holy Spirit, but not the specific traditions of any time or place, and certainly not any person. And so the Anglican genius was to strike a middle way. Richard Hooker is a priest of the 16th century who's often cited for organizing this middle way in terms of a three-legged stool. Others spoke of it as well. As John Westerhoff again explains, God's revelation was to be both inside and outside the scriptures, guarded and guided by the Holy Spirit. The scriptures are intended, Hooker attests, to be a living word, not a collection of dead letters. That is, the scriptures and tradition are not self-explanatory, but they require the use of reason to determine their meaning. Reason isn't something that's worked out alone or individually, and there are no independent authorities. But rather, there is one single authority that's composed of these intersecting sources, the scriptures being the normative source of authority and reason, tradition, helping to interpret and understand scripture. When newcomers come to All Souls, or probably to any Episcopal church, either from a more Catholic background or from a more Protestant background, they're sometimes frustrated at what they perceive at the lack of clarity in our tradition about some of the hot-button issues of the day. What does the church think about abortion? What does the church think about capital punishment? What does the church think? On and on and on we can go. And while we sometimes don't answer those questions as clearly or as forthrightly as we might, Make no mistake, our church has opinions. Our church has carefully formed opinions, formed only after much prayer, much study, and much conversation. The 78th General Convention of the Episcopal Church has just finished its meeting out in Utah this year. 
And it's come up with a number of decisions, guidelines, and policies. The church has given the green light to same-gender marriage. And rather than call it the blessing of a same-gender relationship, they're using the word marriage now. This is a perfect example of how an Anglican understanding of authority has informed the decisions and shapes our lives as Anglicans and Episcopalians. For that issue around marriage, scripture has been studied. And wherever and whenever marriage is talked about, that passage has been lifted up and looked at in terms of culture and time and perspective of those who wrote down the scriptures and kept them. Traditional readings of the scriptures are taken into consideration. Again, read carefully, looked at, given the culture and the moral environment in which they were shaped. And finally, reason has been brought into the conversation as historians and sociologists and medical experts and psychologists and others have been consulted. And finally, there's been the witness of faithful Christians, followers of Jesus Christ who seek to be his body in the world, how they witness to God's truth on these issues, how we witness to God's truth in these issues. And so all these various sources over time go into our understanding of authority. And then there's prayer and there's conversation and there is voting. Believe it or not, there is voting because we believe that God's Holy Spirit informs our decisions. Votes are taken and official decisions are come up with. The Episcopal Church is a tiny church in the grand scheme of religious movements. But the second part of today's gospel, I think, talks about the faithfulness of poverty, the grace of being small and little and insignificant in the eyes of the world. Thank God we don't have the power that we thought we had in the 50s or the 60s. It allows us to be looser and more flexible and speak the truth with boldness and integrity. Now, there are those who will not listen to us. Why should they? There are those who some of us may even deeply love who won't understand or approve of us and our church. But as Jesus told the faithful followers in his day, if any place will not welcome you and they refuse to hear you, as you leave, shake off the dust on your feet. But go, go Keep witnessing to my love and power, calling all to turn again to the love of God. And with that authority, you will see miracles, you will see healing, you will see the kingdom of God. At the closing Eucharist of the General Convention the other day, Bishop Michael Curry, our new presiding bishop-elect, preached the closing sermon. And though he didn't use the term authority, Bishop Curry preached a lot about it, about the ongoing authority of Jesus Christ. He said, Jesus came to show us how to become the human family of God, and in that is our hope and our salvation, now and unto the day of eternity. Bishop Curry then quotes the popular Christian writer Max Lucado, who says, God loves you just the way you are, but he doesn't intend to leave you that way. Bishop Curry concludes, Jesus came to the world, into the world, to change us from the nightmare that life can often be 
into the dream that God has intended before the earth and the world ever was made. On this 4th of July weekend, thanks be to God for the gifts of scripture, tradition, and reason that point us again and again and again to the living source of our authority, to Jesus Christ, who with the Father and the Holy Spirit lives and reigns one God, world without end. Amen.